Welcome. You are listening to a podcast brought to you by the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy. Well, uh, this is not going to be a traditional lecture session. Uh, it is going to be more engaging as a student interactive session. So we have Faisal Thoms, a fellow student of International Studies and Diplomacy, who will engage with uh, Ambassador Dhanpada with a series of questions on a discussion on nuclear uh, security issues in South Asia. And now request Faisal uh, Thoms to take over. Thank you, Miku. Uh, am I audible enough? Thank you. So, beginning with our discussion on nuclear issues in South Asia, uh, I'd like to take uh, the attention, take forward the attention on India and Pakistan. So, Ambassador, between India and Pakistan, there has been an escalating nuclear arms race and a rivalry since a considerable period of time. Do you think this race is still active or has it been subsided? What do you think is the situation right now? First of all, India would reject the notion that it is engaged in a race with Pakistan because it regards Pakistan as a negligible competitor. It's going for the big league for China and the rationale for India becoming a nuclear weapon state is the fact that China posed a threat. And of course, in the case of Pakistan, they crossed the Rubicon and became a nuclear weapon state because of India. So we have to remember the sequence. If Pakistan disarms tomorrow, it doesn't mean that India is going to disarm. So it's not, a, not that much of a competition, but it's one of those domino effects that take place in uh, international relations that is very, very unfortunate. We know from the history of the nuclear issue in South Asia that uh, as early as 1974, India did have what they described then falsely as a peaceful nuclear test, which was in fact a nuclear test, using material that was sent under a peaceful nuclear exchange program from Canada for what was called, ironically, the Buddha, smiling Buddha test. Uh, but then... Uh, it was very clear that India was not going to join the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, ostensibly because it was a discriminatory treaty, but really because India had nurtured ambitions for a very long time to be a nuclear weapon-equipped country. It finally did in 1998, and I was in the United Nations at that time, and of course, the Secretary General's statement was drafted by me, and I had had to express great uh, regret that India had taken this decision. After a few weeks, Pakistan followed suit uh, because Pakistan also had nurtured ambitions of going nuclear in response to India's program. So we have a situation where I think, according to the statistics, from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, uh, India has an estimated, uh, let me see, uh, I think in India has an estimated 100 to 120 nuclear warheads, whereas 
Pakistan has again about the same, 100 to 120. Uh, China has 260. All that is small league compared to the big league actors, uh, and that is the United States and Russia. Those two countries alone have 93% of the total uh, nuclear weapons uh, warheads in the world, and that's something like 15,650 nuclear warheads. All of them, of course, not actively deployed, but still in arsenals in various parts of the world. So we have to understand the proportion of the India and Pakistan threat to global uh, security in terms of the numbers they have uh, and not be carried away by the fact that there are still ongoing tensions. Both sides assure the world that they have their nuclear weapons under tight control. In Pakistan in particular, because of the uh, number of terrorist groups that exist, the Pakistanis have been at pains to ensure that their nuclear weapons are under total safety conditions uh, and that there is no likelihood of any leakage to nuclear terrorist or terrorist groups with nuclear ambitions. Uh, in, uh, that issue is not, uh, at issue, not a question in India. So, yes, what you asked me is true, that there is uh, concerns because the uh, tensions between India and uh, Pakistan continue. And in October, we've had a number of clashes across the line of control, particularly in Kashmir, and uh, there have been deaths of soldiers as well as uh, uh, civilians, and one hopes that it will not escalate. We need to have more and more controls in situations like that, and Pugwash is very active in promoting a dialogue between uh, nuclear weapon states in a state of enmity like that. Uh, but we need to have controls, and I think both countries can benefit a lot from the uh, Cold War mechanisms that were used by the old Soviet Union and the United States in terms of trying to ensure that there are hotline connections in terms of emergencies, uh, that there are other agreements so that a uh, small incident across the border does not escalate. One uh, further issue is that, of course, they have had agreements in the past. They have agreed, for example, not to attack each other's nuclear installations. Uh, and that's a good st first step. Uh, and, of course, there is also the concern about the cold start nuclear doctrine. Now, India has a no first use policy with regard to the use of nuclear weapons. But the uh, fact of the matter is that in the case of uh, Pakistan, it feels that that's not a sufficient security guarantee because India has an overwhelming superiority in terms of conventional weapons. So the Indians, the Pakistanis are reported to have a nuclear doctrine where they are ready to use nuclear weapons if there is a massive invasion by India with conventional weapons. So you have nuclear weapons being considered as a reply, a response to the use of conventional weapons, which is considerable escalation of the level of warfare. And that the Pakistanis are ready to use even if it is on their own territory. And that's a very frightening prospect. 
Thank you for that detailed uh, details about international relations out there. Um, also, with the first no first use policy that you spoke about, do you think uh, India China having such no first use policy uh, it won't ever lead to a war situation? Uh, or can Pakistan play in between, creating a triangular ri- rivalry between uh, China, India, and Pakistan? And is it going to destabilize that region? I doubt very much whether China will be so irresponsible as to intervene in a India-Pakistan clash by allowing its own nuclear weapon capability to be used in the strategic game among the three countries. I think China is too cautious and wise and will also realize that if they get drawn into a bilateral conflict, then what is there to prevent other countries, the United States perhaps coming in or the Russian Federation coming in. So I think the Chinese will stay clear of this. They will, of course, assist uh, Pakistan through diplomatic means. As you know, there is an effort by India to get into the nuclear supplies group. Although it's been well established in the past, that you have to be a NPT, Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Party, if you want to become a nuclear suppliers group uh, member in order to qualify for the materials that you need for developing the peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Now, India has been able to bypass all this because of the support of the United States, and the United States first signed a U.S. nuclear cooperation agreement with India, and now India is gradually quoting others in the nuclear suppliers group in order to uh, get into the nuclear suppliers group. And in response, the Chinese have said, we can't, cannot allow India to come into the nuclear suppliers group unless Pakistan also comes in. So you have this ludicrous situation of a, situa- of a stipulation that membership in the NPT is vital to be a member of the nuclear suppliers group being ignored by everybody. And this is how the NPT is gradually, insidiously being undermined by major nuclear weapon countries like the United States. That's agreeable. But uh, Chinese did threaten India in 1962 war that if they, open, if they continue rivalry with Pakistan, they would open the front in the uh, Aksai Jin area. So do you think that they have, to, they have done it before? So don't you think they can do it ahead? What you have is an Indian perspective on the Indo-Chinese war. I would recommend <laughs> you read a book by the Times correspondent in India which says that what happened in the 1962 war was as a result of Indian provocation and Nehru's own blight assumption that the Indians, the Chinese would never attack. But the Chinese attacked and never went further. They went, proved their point and retreated. That's a very important historical fact. And the uh, disputed territory still is disputed. The border between India and China, which goes back to British colonial times, remains undetermined and efforts to negotiate a permanent boundary has never succeeded. But the Chinese have not intervene in the Indo-Pakistan issue. They have demonstrated they have legitimate territorial rights in that part of the world, but have not proceeded to assert it beyond the 1962 war. That was a thought-provoking 
<laughs> response, Ambassador. So, Ambassador, I'd like to ask you uh, whether these positions, how much do the other South Asian countries, your own country, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, how much insecure or secure do they feel with this triangular rivalry? They do feel insecure because if there is a nuclear conflagration between India and Pakistan, all of us are going to get enveloped in uh, the mushroom cloud or in all the fallout from a nuclear weapon exchange and that we know from the scientific studies conducted over and over again that this can affect our ecology, it can affect our <coughs> agriculture and it can affect the health of our people. So we would very much hope that India and Pakistan refrain from using nuclear weapons against each other and in fact continue to live in peace. But it does also uh, affect many established mechanisms that we have for cooperation amongst ourselves. Uh, and that includes, I think you were going to ask me about the South Asian uh, Association. Association for Regional Cooperation, SARC which has never got off the ground because of this rivalry between India and Pakistan. And so we are condemned to discuss telecommunications and a few other uh, innocuous matters, but real economic cooperation uh, cannot get off the ground because of Indo-Pakistan rivalry. And that is very, very unfortunate because it really means that all our peoples who have many common things in, in terms of culture, historical background are unable to cooperate for their development needs because of this rivalry that exists. So do you think that India is being very ambitious, it should be contained in terms of uh, SARC uh, issues, India is being more forward, India is trying to control things uh, and hence become, becoming a hindrance to development? Uh, how would you properly propose to revive SARC either by controlling India, containing India, or probably encouraging other South Asian countries to be more uh, open in their uh, in voicing their opinions? I don't think any country should be contained within a regional framework. A country has a natural right to develop its full potential, and India is a major power today, uh, not just a South Asian power. So it is developing its economy in such a way that it's reaching out to all regions in the world. Uh, just as much as China has engaged in a peaceful uh, transition, uh, although there are people who see uh, some kind of threat in, India's, in, in, in China's rise, I think the burgeoning of the middle class in China has been a historic human achievement. Over 300 million people have been able to rise above the level of poverty. Uh, likewise, in India, there is remarkable development, uh, which I see every time I visit India, and that's, uh, that's something that is very important. But what is tragic is that the lack of cooperation amongst uh, the uh, South Asian partners, I mean, it's there bilaterally between India and, and, and Sri Lanka, but it should be a, a, a much wider framework where all of us can uh, be, be participant in a common tide that lifts us all instead of any uh, special problems. There is, as we know, cross-border terrorism, and that's very unfortunate that there are uh, terrorist groups 
who work across borders. We suffered that in Sri Lanka because terrorist groups uh, who challenged the fundamental unity and territorial integrity of India of, of Sri Lanka were based in India and were supported by India. Ultimately, in the final concluding stages of our war against the Sri Lankan terrorists, India did help to put down that uh, menace. And now we have peace in Sri Lanka. So we have to cooperate with regard to those political issues also and not allow each other's territorial integrity to be violated by terrorist groups. That is very true. Narrowing down further on non-state actors, do you think non-state actors can have access to the nuclear material, especially the AQ Khan's nuclear smuggling case that happened? So is it likely that uh, the non-state actors are can have easy access to nuclear material, especially Pakistan state connection with terrorist groups? What do you think? There are two aspects to your question. One is the black market in nuclear materials. And A.Q. Khan was a notorious example of that. Uh, he has since been, of course, his activities have been curbed and exposed. But for many, many years it went on. And it took a long time for the CIA to finally zero in on him and get the Pakistan government to uh, curb his activities because until then he had the aura of having been the father of the Pakistan nuclear weapon. Uh, but now I think there is increasingly uh, opprobrium attached to people who are engaged in the trade of these materials because these are debt merchants. Of course, you have debt merchants who produce other bombs and other types of machinery in all countries and that is something to be deplored. Uh, the second group of people who are involved, of course, are the terrorist groups who are actively seeking to acquire nuclear weapons because for them the nuclear weapon is the ultimate weapon. And with that they think they have the Trump card, not thing to do with, Dan, with <laughs> Mr. Donald, Donald Trump, Trump <laughs> but uh, the Trump card in, in war. And uh, it's very, very uh, dangerous because uh, they have the capacity uh, through terror to acquire these materials. The evidence so far is that the uh, terrorist groups, if at all, may acquire some amount of uh, nuclear material which, used with conventional explosives, can cause a dirty bomb. And that can spread radiation and sufficient damage. It will not be as bad as a nuclear weapon, but it can also cause uh, danger. And I think it requires maximum surveillance on the part of the governments of the world. It requires cooperation on the part of intelligence agencies to prevent this happening. And there have been cases, of course, where you trace. But there is a great onus that uh, rests on the international community and on all governments to protect the nuclear material they have. Because quite apart from the nuclear weapons that we have around the world, there is a lot of nuclear material, uranium and plutonium, some of which is, is all over. Uh, 1,355 tons of highly enriched uranium and separated plutonium, we have 230 tons and civilian stocks, 275 tons. Now, not all of this material is adequately safeguarded. 
And that is what is important to uh, try to safeguard this material. Some of this material is used for very normal constructive purposes as for example the eradication of ca cancer. So you have to, I know for example when the Sri Lanka terrorist uh, threat was on, we had to move uh, the cancer uh, treatment plants in Jaffna to uh, the south in order to ensure that the terrorists don't lay their hands on the, uh, the, the material that could be converted into a uh, a nuclear weapon. That was enlightening response. Uh, I never thought of it that way. Um, what incentives do you think can be given to India, Pakistan, or China to take a path towards disarmament? Will they ever do? Will they ever choose that path of disarmament? Why should they choose that path if others continue with the acquisition of nuclear weapons? I think. It's unfair to ask only India and Pakistan to get rid of their nuclear weapons when the United States and Russia and France and the United Kingdom, which is now going ahead with its trident policy, when they get rid of it. Why are you having two standards for two different sets of people? There has to be universal nuclear disarmament because nuclear weapons are bad. They're bad for the world. They will only kill more and more people. And the fact that you have nuclear weapons will encourage those who don't have to acquire them. You can never have absolute nuclear non-proliferation unless you eliminate nuclear weapons. And I think the route to follow is what the overwhelming majority in the UN this year in October voted for, and that is going to negotiate a nuclear weapon convention which bans all weapons for all time. And that is the route to follow, not to pick on India or, uh, or China or uh, Pakistan to get rid of their nuclear weapons. Why should they get rid of their nuclear weapons and the United Kingdom hang on to theirs? <laughs> Absolutely. There is no God-given right for the United Kingdom to have uh, nuclear weapons. <laughs> Absolutely true. But what do you think? Are these? Uh, is there any discriminatory policies in NPT? NPT review conference happened a year back, and uh, was there a consensus to the document or? Did it, or did it? Was it a <coughs> failure? Why are the countries taking, finding it very hard to come to a consensus in terms of nuclear disarmament? The treaty for the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons was signed in 1968 and came into force in 1970. And today it has about 186 countries subscribing to it, which is the largest and most widely subscribed disarmament treaty in the world. But it's a treaty that, first of all, was evolved in a world that was dominated by the two Cold War warriors, the U.S. and the USSR, and then gradually acquired uh, more popularity as a means of stabilizing the situation. But there is a fundamental division between the nuclear weapon states five of them under the definition of the NPT, and the non-nuclear weapon states. And there is tension all the time between these two groups. Many people regard it as a discriminatory treaty, which is why India did not join it, Pakistan did not join it, and several others did not join it. But there are many who have joined it. Israel is also a non-member. 
and uh, the obligations required of the uh, nuclear weapon states is different from the obligations required of the non-nuclear weapon states. There are conventionally three pillars which keep the NPT going. One is the non-proliferation pillar, which is what the treaty title says. In other words, those who have the weapon promise not to give it to others, although that has been violated. The French are guilty of through secret means, transferring the weapon to Israel. The Americans gave it to the United Kingdom. Uh, we don't know how the French got it, but uh, there are rumors as to how they also got it. So, there has been, nobody's hands have been cleaned on this issue. The second pillar is the question of uh, peaceful uses of nuclear energy. Under Article 4 of the treaty, those who have uh, the capital, the wealth, as well as the nuclear uh, weapons, as well as those who have the knowledge of how to use peaceful uses of nuclear, of, of, of nuclear material, that is countries like Switzerland and Australia, the Scandinavian countries, they are obliged to help the less developed countries on the benefits of peaceful uses of nuclear energy. And those are, of course, to be supervised by International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards. The third pillar, and the most important pillar as far as the non-nuclear weapon states are concerned, which attracted them to join, is that under Article 6, the disarmament pillar, the, those who have nuclear weapons promised that they would give it up. And there is an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice, which came out in 1996, which says that they have to negotiate to a successful conclusion that obligation. But nothing has happened since then, and this is why there are constant uh, disagreements. Now, when I was faced as president of the 1995 Review and Extension Conference, I had to implement a clause in the treaty which said that after 25 years, the parties to the treaty had to meet and decide whether to extend the treaty indefinitely or for period of periods. The Americans were very good at strong-arming everybody, and in the capitals, I think they rounded up a sufficient majority. And it was clear there was a majority of those countries who participated in the 1995 conference who wanted the treaty to be indefinitely extended. But they did so on specific grounds. And those grounds were captured by me in two documents, the two decisions that went along with the decision to extend the treaty indefinitely. Uh, that was uh, the need for a strengthened review process, uh, certain principles and, and uh, recommendations with regard to the observance of the treaty, and finally, a resolution on the Middle East, which required the Middle East to be converted into a weapon of mass destruction-free zone. Now, these are forgotten, unfortunately, when, and everybody remembers only the indefinite extension. But I was the president of the conference. I've written a book on the subject. And I feel that uh, many of those promises that were made in the haste of the Western world, really, 
and the nuclear weapon states in general to have the indefinite extension that these obligations should be met if the treaty is to remain a viable treaty. Now, what has happened is since then we have had uh, the review conference which takes place every five years, failing on many occasions since those obligations have not been met. And what happened in 2015 was that there was a total failure. Now, in 2020, if we are going to have a success, there has to be much more progress than there has been up to now. And with Mr. Donald Trump assuming the presidency of the United States, I am very, very dubious about that. <laughs> that was a smart response, Ambassador. Uh, bringing this beautiful discussion to a conclusion, on a personal note, please share your experience as the UN Undersecretary General for the Department of Disarmament. How was it to handle countries with adamant positions on nuclear, uh, helping them to think of disarmament, and so on and so forth? It was a very uh, challenging experience, and I was very fortunate to have as Secretary General Mr. Kofi Annan, one of the most able Secretaries General we've had since Dag Hamashal. And I think his first term during which I served was one of the most brilliant episodes in the history of the United Nations. Unfortunately, his second episode was clouded by the fact that the American intervention in Iraq and his own approach to that question clashed. And so he was unable to fulfill his own abilities to that extent in the uh, entirety of his career. But uh, we were able to make progress not only in the question of weapons of mass destruction, uh, but also with regard to small arms and light weapons, because that was one of the major issues at the time. We held our first conference on uh, trying to have a program of action for the control of the spread of small arms and light weapons. We were able to negotiate a Central Asian nuclear weapon-free zone. Uh, we were able to have many other things, and I was happy that on disarmament and development also we had many, many uh, progressive measures taken. Uh, I was also able to strengthen the concept of regional disarmament because we have regional disarmament uh, centers in Lima, in Lome, and in Kathmandu, and those were given fresh uh, vitalization and, and strength to conduct their regional programs. So we were able to do many things, and the gender issue was also, you will be interested to know, uh, very prominent in our work, and we uh, gave uh, a lot of importance to the to having a gender uh, action plan in the Department of Disarmament Affairs. Oh, that was wonderful! <laughs> you must have a wonderful time out there. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Um, questions? Uh, the floor is open to questions. I think that was quite an engaging conversation uh, between uh, Tessa and Ambassador. Uh, so I thank you, Tessa. So we have uh, an opportunity to ask uh, questions from the audience. Uh, anyone who is interested in? Yes, good. good evening. Thank you for that talk. Uh, I'm, I'm David from the CISD as well. I'm curious about the terrorist group getting hand on the nuclear weapons. 
uh, if every country that signed the nuclear non-proliferation treaty abide by the first pillar, which is non-proliferation, we're safe. If the countries that didn't sign it for purposes of security don't pass the technology to any, ter any ter third group, we're safe. But now that the education got democratized, isn't it possible that one individual learn, study how to st study chemistry, specialize in nuclear uh, power, and gets to understand how that goes? And that in individual later in the future can turn to uh, extremist uh, ideas, extremist views uh, of the world. And then they will have not the facilities, but at least they would have the know-how. Will that be a threat? And how can we prevent uh, that threat? This is from the reluctant terrorist. <laughs> no, I'm just... <laughs> I don't know whether you know that book and the film. But anyway, I'm... Just that's a digression. Uh, first of all, uh, I think the manufacture of a nuclear weapon requires more than the brains of a man who knows chemistry or physics. I think physics is more the field than chemistry because it requires a huge infrastructure. You need the material also for it. And you need it in sufficient quantity. And you need it to be built under sufficient conditions of secrecy so that nobody discovers what is happening before they arrest you or before they... So it's not like making chemical weapons which you can do in your kitchen. Uh, but nuclear weapons requires a bigger infrastructure than that. So that's why I think it's not a question of individuals uh, you know, doing this in, in the back of a garage or something like that. It's a much more elaborate process. And uh, the organization of that would require uh, considerable effort. Dr. Ekyu Khan was not somebody who actually did this. He traded with the material. He, he passed on the material allegedly to DPRK and to some other groups. But we don't know enough about what they did with it. And what happened in the old Soviet Union is when it was breaking up, there was a very wide-ranging uh, program called the Nan-Luga program, financed by the U.S. government, which went into the nuclear cities of the dismembered Soviet Union in order to protect the material that was there, to safeguard it, and to ensure that the scientists there were not unemployed because since they were no longer making nuclear weapons, they had to be found a job, otherwise they could have been lured by these terrorist groups and by you know, countries that were looking for ways and means to develop nuclear bombs into giving them jobs to make a nuclear weapon. And that was a far-sighted program which was successful. And uh, uh, that's one way in which the nuclear non-proliferation treaty was implemented. Uh, the next question from Natasha. Okay. 
Thank you, Ambassador. It's been very interesting. Um, my question is with regard to preventative measures for the future. Um, we had Scott Sagan here earlier this week talking about the highest risk of... He's a good man, a personal friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. It was at SOAS too. And um, he had said that the biggest risk was an accidental detonation, um, whether it be by road state or even by negligence from our own state. Yes. So my question to him uh, later on by email, which I haven't had an answer to yet, is this whole thing about anti-ballistic um, anti missile technology and CED, oh, strategic defence initiatives. Now he said that there isn't the technology yet to uh, neutralise a threat, but there was reported by the um, New York Times last year that Israel had been successful in taking out a missile that was detonated from somewhere in the Mediterranean from the stratosphere. And it looks like Arrow 3 and 4 are actually being developed, but not enough. Do you think that we should be investing more money in defence and preventative technology that can take these missiles like Star Wars out of the air before we look to actually seek universal disarmament? The history of warfare from time immemorial is a battle between trying to find the perfect shield to prevent a sword from penetrating it and to find the perfect sword from penetrating any shield that can be invented. And I don't think either has ever been invented. So when President Ronald Reagan started to talk about the Strategic Defense Initiative, it was actually a pie in the sky. He was talking about having scientists develop a system that would prevent any missile from penetrating it. But it has been proved over and over again, and you should read Ted Posner from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who has repeatedly shown that these so-called perfect defense shields are penetrable. You can use decoys, you can use other means of trying to get through. So the percentage of success, even if one of them gets through, it is enough to destroy your defenses. Maybe you are able to block some of them, but it's a huge cost to engage in to depend on, on those defense shields. Many experiments have been conducted by the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization in the United States, and they don't all publish the results of it, but what has been published shows failures. And what has happened in Israel is that they have the Iron Dome concept, which has been used, but some missiles have got through. And if you look at the actual situation in Israel, some of the missiles launched by the Palestinian groups have been able to land in Israel. Not all of them successful, but even if 1% succeeds, it can cause enormous damage, depends on where it lands. Do you think that in the future, just like with mobile technology, we could develop it so in the next 10 years, we might not have the same... As people develop their defenses, other people will de develop ways in which to subvert those defenses and to get by, get through to them. So the tussle will continue and enormous sums of money are being used in this. Why don't you sit down at a table and negotiate your political differences rather than build up more and more sophisticated defenses and more and more sophisticated missiles? That is the answer. Uh, I think there was a question from that one. <coughs> Sorry, you've been waiting a long time. <laughs> My question is with regards to um, the UN, how they're depicted as 
uh, a representative of the international community with regards to nuclear disarmament or armament. So my question is that to what extent which um, organizations like the non-aligned movement which is formed by the Global South, like do we have hope that they could um, bring about nuclear disarmament or even progress? Well, the non-aligned movement is an important pressure group of 120 countries today. And I can tell you that the first special session of the General Assembly devoted to the subject of disarmament was conceived of by the non-aligned movement at a summit meeting held in my country in 1976. And the conference was held in 1978 in New York. And that final document of SSOD 1 is one of the most definitive documents with regard to multilateral disarmament. And it was adopted by consensus. It was the Carter era in the United States, and so there was no major problems with the U.S. administration. And it was a period of detente with the USSR and the USA. So we were able to have a consensus agreement on the definition of the threat from of nuclear weapons, the priority that had to be given to nuclear disarmament means all other disarmament. You are talking about general and complete disarmament now, whereas nuclear disarmament is always a priority issue in that, in that uh, table of disarmament subjects. Uh, and we have been a pressure group which has over the years led the way uh, to having disarmament measures uh, and compelled the nuclear weapon states to have the subject on the agenda. Uh, so this has been a, a very important pressure group. It doesn't always succeed in what it wants to do. As you know, I was referring to the, con the resolution that was adopted in the first committee. 123 countries voted for that resolution. But, of course, they were met with a lot of resistance from the uh, nuclear weapon states and their allies. And uh, we don't know what will happen next, whether they're going to proceed to implement it, whether they'll get everybody together around the table. But a lot of success has been achieved, thanks to the non-aligned group and thanks to others who are in favor of disarmament. And that includes some Western countries. Netherlands, for example, voted uh, to abstain on that issue, even though it's a NATO country. So, um, I am very much interested in the politics. Uh, 
which New Zealand chose to abandon nuclear weapons uh, by themselves and to declare the nuclear free zone. How would you assess, how do you think of this kind of political uh, attitude? Do you think it's practical or not? It's eminently practical. First of all, New Zealand did not abandon nuclear weapons. It was a non-nuclear weapon state. What it did was to insist that ships coming into their harbors had to declare whether they carried nuclear weapons or not. And that was a very courageous act for a small country like New Zealand to take because it had an agreement with the United States under ANSYS to have this uh, military relationship with uh, the United States. What it did do was negotiate the Treaty of Rarotonga along with other South Pacific countries and Australia to declare that region a nuclear weapon-free zone. Now, there are many nuclear weapon-free zones. The first was uh, concluded in Mexico City under the Treaty of Tatalolco where the whole of Latin America and the Caribbean was declared a nuclear weapon-free zone. And that uh, now will next year celebrate its 50th anniversary and I've been invited to come and speak there to observe that. Uh, what happens in nuclear weapon-free zones, and there are six of them, is that the nuclear weapon states under the NPT have got to sign protocols to respect the fact that those countries are nuclear weapon-free zones, which means that you can't station nuclear weapons owned by you in those nuclear weapon-free zones. And if the countries say, don't bring your ships with nuclear weapons, you must observe that. So that's a very important progressive step because it restricts the maneuverability of nuclear weapon state countries with their nuclear weapons to station them where they wish to be stationed. So we have Treaty of Tatalolco uh, in regard to Latin America and the Caribbean, the Treaty of Perindiaba, which, de which declares the whole of Africa as a nuclear weapon-free zone. You have the Central Asian nuclear weapon-free zone with the five stands in the middle, and then you have the Treaty of Bangkok, which has Southeast Asia as a nuclear weapon-free zone, and the Treaty of Rarotonga, which declares the South Pacific. There is one unique case of Mongolia, which is a single state which has declared itself to be a nuclear weapon-free state. And that's also observed because they have the nuclear weapon states, countries, pledge to honor that and to respect that. So it's a very important way in which Today, a total of, I think, 120 countries are within nuclear weapon-free zones. And I think coming from the only country in the world which suffered nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I can understand your uh, hope that the whole world will convert into being one single nuclear weapon-free zone. Great. Uh, next question. Regarding this, um, I visited uh, Ambassador Sano in Geneva uh, two weeks ago, and I talked about this issue, and also uh, I know there are some Japanese scholars insist that Japan has to create a regional Asian uh, nu nuclear free zone. But in reality, of uh, Japanese diplomacy, we have sandwich diplomacy. Yeah? From Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, we 
how uh, he actually experiences and also it how protected by US and now Trump election happens and now we are Japanese diplomacy what we have to do <laughs> this is uh, my um, I'm studying here in scrap project and I'm studying international security but um, I'm struggling to understand what situation is in Japanese diplomacy and I, I'd like to ask you what suggestion for Japanese diplomacy. Campaign for a referendum <laughs> on nuclear weapons or not yeah. in Japan and you will have an answer like Brexit perhaps which will surprise the yeah, rulers in Japan. <laughs> No, it's very clear that uh, the people of Japan, not only because of the Hibakusha, but also because of its natural sentiment, would uh, like not to have anything to do with nuclear weapons. But uh, the government, unfortunately, is wedded to uh, the, the treaty, security treaty with uh, the United States, and it's a very complicated issue. And you also have bases like Okinawa. Yes. Your first part was, is Israel have... There is no evidence that Israel assisted Pakistan in the development of its nuclear no, weapons. Within, within range. I think the range of the Pakistan nuclear weapons is essentially confined to its Indian targets and not to, the, to any targets beyond that. And yes, but you see, targeting is, is, is very, very... Uh, subjective and you, you I mean the fact that you have a range doesn't mean that you are targeting another country the uh, Pakistanis frankly are not so concerned about Israel as they are about, about India uh, secondly I think the projections of Pakistan's nuclear development are highly exaggerated I don't know where you got those figures from uh, they are acquiring nuclear weapons more than the hundred that they have now, yes, that's true, but whether they are going to ever be the third largest is, I think, wild conjecture and not anything more than that. No one has seriously written anything about that. No one has seriously made such a uh, such an allegation. It is true that one is concerned about the Pakistan uh, nuclear weapon uh, development and the fact that they are developing battlefield nuclear weapons which again is of a limited range to be used if the Indian Army, conventional army, attacks them. But uh, that does not uh, equal being the third largest nuclear weapon holder. Because uh, I just came back on this number, but um, no one is scared of war in India. Nobody is scared? I just came back on this number. Yes. And uh, no one is scared of war with India. They're not scared. Okay, well, that's because, that's because they think they have a nuclear weapon deterrent. Uh, yeah, we don't know 
exactly how embedded this, this thing is, and uh, kind of uh, this and that we will really come from. Uh, and this, are there any more questions? Uh, yeah, second one, please. Yeah, you. I thank you very much for the lecture. I'm also from Japan, and I used to uh, be a member of the nuclear abolition campaign. Good. So I'm very uh, personal uh, emotion on the issue, but. Uh, when we think about the position of nuclear weapons by North Korea, or the, uh, and also uh, Trump will decrease commitment to uh, East Asian region, then that may probably uh, uh, get the uh, South Korean people to possess their own nuclear weapons, and as well as in Japan. And also, if Trump decreases its commitment to Iranian uh, issues, then Iran, uh, the hardliners in Iran can uh, again try to possess nuclear weapons. And how do you think non-nuclear non powers, uh, non-nuclear weapon countries, uh, how, how can we prevent non-nuclear weapon countries uh, from possessing nuclear weapons? If U.S. or other uh, nuclear power, uh, for example, export nuclear technology, for example, in, in India, as you said. And how, how can we prevent uh, this kind of uh, spread of nuclear technology? Well, you asked several questions in the process of your intervention. First, let me say that we are in uncharted territory. Mr. Donald Trump has been elected by the U.S. College of Electors, not by the people, perhaps, uh, but still we have a set of statements he made during the campaign, and we have the vagueness of what his actual policies will be. And there are indications that we gather that on several issues, like, for example, the issue of climate change, he may be changing his mind. So we have to wait until his actual policies are formulated and announced before we can take any issues. And one of those statements made during the campaign was that he would encourage a free-for-all with regard to the possession of nuclear weapons. He would ask Japan to have nuclear weapons, South Korea to have weapons, and so on. We don't know whether that is going to happen or not, and whether those countries themselves will agree with Mr. Trump. Uh, giving them permission to have nuclear weapons and whether it is in their interest, their security interest, to go ahead with the Trump road. Uh, I rather suspect they would not. But uh, that's one aspect. The second aspect is that uh, if you tear up the nuclear weapon, non-nuclear weapon, the new NPT treaty, then of course it's a free-for-all and anybody has no restrictions. Uh, you can't prevent North Korea from going nuclear. You can't prevent anybody from deciding to be nuclear. And then it's a, a chaotic, anarchic world, which I think is not what is in the interests of the citizens of the world. So I don't think that's going to happen. I think wiser counsel will prevail, and we will continue to have a rule-based world, which is very important. And a rule-based world, is, first and foremost, is there in the Charter of the United Nations. Under Article 2.4, we resolve not to use force in our international relations. Uh, force is only used in self-defense and in the collective interest under Article 7, where the 
Security Council decides that you have to protect the collective security of the world through the use of combined self-defense of the forces uh, deployed by the Security Council resolutions. So I think the scenario that you were envisaging of a, of a breakdown where everybody has nuclear weapons is unlikely to emerge uh, for sheer self-preservation. I mean, I don't think everybody having a nuclear weapon is going to make the world a safer place. It won't. It make it terribly unsafe and it makes uh, us all commit collective suicide. Um, yeah. What do you think uh, as a former uh, international civil servant and diplomat, are you optimistic really in the real politics about, uh, do you see a future without uh, nuclear proliferation? Because all the member states of the Security Council, they have the best possible nuclear arsenals and best possible state-of-the-art army. Permanent members, not all of them. Permanent the members. But they rule the world, you know. If the water comes from the Himalayas and that water is poisoned or is poisoned, how can you stop that? That's my question. You know? <clears throat> there is no inevitability <clears throat> of poison remaining in the world. Did you ever think yourself five years ago or ten years ago that the system of apartheid would collapse? in South Africa, and Nelson Mandela, after 27 years, would be freed. Did you ever think that slavery would be abolished? I mean, it, it happened in 1847 uh, under Force, but people who lived at that time and were acquiring enormous wealth to build some of those wonderful palaces you see here in England, out of the wealth obtained from slavery, did you think slavery would ever end? But today, the abolition of slavery is a permanent good in international affairs. It's a human right that we have enjoyed. Likewise, many things have happened in international relations which we thought were immutable, but which changed. I lived in my own lifetime to see my country emerge from colonialism. For 450 years, we were under Western colonial rule. And in 1948, my country became independent. Now, you may quarrel as to whether we did the right thing with our self-rule, that's a different issue, but we are able to rule ourselves and make our own mistakes. So I, I think in the same way, the elimination of nuclear weapons can take place if there is sufficient energy and uh, political will on the part of all countries. Uh, I think we have scope for only one question, so... Uh... <coughs> just wanted to follow up on the uh, question which my colleague raised uh, at the bottom and the answer you gave. So the same question was raised in, uh, we had a um, seminar on the Chilcot report last week. Yes. And the same question was raised as to whether it was correct, it was moral of uh, countries which have nuclear weapons to make judgments on other countries and to wage a war um, uh, based on that fact, based on the fact that other countries can't have nuclear weapons, can't have weapons of mass destruction. And my colleague in the last uh, seminar asked whether it was, um, basically she said, how dare these countries say that, right? 
Um, and the answer she received was, the world would be a worse place if every other country has nuclear weapons. So therefore, we have to continue to uh, contain it, similar to the answer you gave now. But my question is, how long can you keep making these arguments? As long as superpowers uh, or like India and Pakistan and even new countries start acquiring nuclear weapons, how, how long can you keep making this argument? And it is, is it a morally correct argument to make? I mean, apart from all the politics and all that, but is it a morally correct argument to make? When you have been a country which signed an international treaty called the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which imposes on you an obligation to remain non-nuclear, then violating that treaty is a breach of international law. And so that's a wrong which cannot be justified in any circumstances. And Saddam Hussein's Iraq had signed the NPT. And when he was secretly developing a nuclear weapon and was secretly developing chemical weapons, then, of course, he was exposed. But what was wrong on the part of the United Kingdom and the United States in invading Iraq is there was a process going on, conducted by the United Nations, which was examining what was happening and which was trying to find evidence of this secret weapons of mass destruction program. And before that task was completed, Mr. Bush and Mr. Blair decided to invade Iraq, causing unimaginable deaths and consequences and creating a political vacuum in Iraq which has still not been filled and which continues to suffer limitless uh, tragedies because of the invasion of Iraq. And you must read the book by Professor Hans Blix, a dear friend of mine, we were together in a conference yesterday, who has written, because he was in charge of the UNMOVIC, the organization set up by the Security Council, to investigate the secret WMD program of Saddam Hussein, but he was just ignored. And then the Americans went in, and even they couldn't find this so-called secret WMD program. So it was a hoax. And the Chilcot inquiry, uh, despite its belated appearance, was a very, very solid report which showed that, yes, there was a mistake made by the uh, Labour government, of course, but uh, it was uh, begun by the United States. And also the Scott Commission report must also not be forgotten because that exposed the fact that there was actual transfer of weapons from this country to Saddam Hussein's regime while he was de de developing long-range uh, conventional weapons. Yes, I think uh, we've taken a major questions which are which also went beyond the topic. But uh, for now, I request a huge round of applause for That's the end of our show. Thank you for listening. You can find all our content on soasradio.org and also on cist.soas.ac.uk. Mm -hmm.